Welcome to this London Society podcast. It's a bit different from the previous ones in that it's all about a single event. The Society's showpiece Bannister Fletcher lecture delivered on this occasion by Georgia Gould, leader of Camden Council and chair of London Councils, the body that represents all 33 of the capital's local authorities. Still in her mid-30s, Gould is rightly seen as a star in her field of government, working cross-party, including with members of Parliament, and with the Mayor of London to bring resources and new powers to the city and to reform the relationship between local government and the Londoners it serves, drawing strongly on lessons learned during the pandemic. She gave her lecture before a full house at the headquarters of the Royal Institute of Architects in Portland Place on the 13th of February, 2023. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. And I'm so delighted to be here this evening to see so many friends and people who are contributing so much to London and really grateful for the London Society to give us this, this space to have a, a really important conversation about London's future, and of course to Reba for hosting us in this absolutely beautiful venue. I am a very proud Londoner, and don't tell anyone in Camden, but I was actually born in St Mary's Hospital and lived for the first few years of my life in Westminster, which I keep a secret. I realise this might not be as scandalous for people who, unlike me, don't like to go and look at all the bins as you pass through the streets to see which borough logo they have on. I know Dave uh, and Tony Travers join me in that. Um, I went to Hawfield School in Bayswater, which was surrounded by hotels that housed recent refugees. And I remember a, a little boy in my class who, every time a door banged, he would hide under the tables because he was so terrified and he'd seen so many members of his families killed. And I've always felt a deep pride to live in a city which has welcomed people and provided a safe haven for people around the world. I moved to Camden as a child and I fell in love with what I think about as our rebellious spirit. Uh, Camden, for those of you who don't know, has a really radical history. It's a place that invests in arts and culture and it really celebrates difference. And it turns out that Camden also nurtured the creative spirit of Sir Bannister Flight Fletcher, something I only found out when I was researching him. His father and co-author, also Bannister Fletcher, lived in Bloomsbury, was married in St Pancras Church, where we hold all, all our civic events, and ended his life in Hampstead. His son, Sir Bannister Flight Fletcher Jr., in whose name this speech is given, was born in Bloomsbury and his varied academic career included a, a stint at UCL where he was the acting professor of architecture. Camden has always been a place that has brought together radicals and reformers and those dedicated to public service. So it's a legacy that continues today and it's wonderful that it's helped bring this amazing group of people together. I still live in Kentish Town, not far from where I grew up, and I love the way that so much of London is a village. I hold my council surgeries at the same library that I used to borrow books from when I was a child. The best local independent bookshop, The Owl, uh, is still my favourite place to go shopping. And I love to look at some of the trees I used to clamber on in Hampstead Heath when I was a child. I sometimes think my husband thinks London, would wish that London was a little bit less of a village when he now like, absolutely refuses to go out with me in Camden because so many people stop me to ask about dog mess or the other big crucial issues of the day. Um, but London is also in constant flux. When I was a child, I could never have imagined that King's Cross would become the global destination that it is today. And I'm really proud of our diverse city, our links to other parts of the country and to the world. And I think most importantly, our people. Uh, the number one reason businesses choose to locate themselves in London is our talent. Laura Citroen told me that the other day. And in an international arena where we are seeing a rolling back of globalisation as trade barriers increase and inward investment stalls globally, London is holding its own. Other cities are begging talent to come and relocate, but we have almost 9 million people here, and we have some of the best education rates in the country. The history of London is one of mixed communities. 
In Camden, we have social housing buttressing the British Museum and in the heart of Hampstead. And in, Lon in London, unlike in Paris, where impoverished uh, uh, suburbs surround the, the city, or Washington, where zoning and racial covenants have led to segregation, in London, we live side by side with people from all different walks of life. We have spaces like community centres and libraries that bring people together. And our universities, our science and innovation hubs are right in the heart of our communities. We don't have that isolated Silicon Valley tech world, but we do have Google, Meta and DeepMind in the heart of our communities, confronted with all the challenges and positives of urban life. Richard Sennett's book, Ethics for the City, talks about the most successful cities being open, connected and inclusive. And London is a poorer city which has huge opportunity to encourage creativity and collaboration. The Francis Crick Institute, the biggest biomedical research centre in Europe, has a classroom to ensure that school children can come in and interact with a science. But all of this is at risk because of our failure as a country to nurture and protect what we have in London and to ensure that it's an engine of growth for the whole country. And we should remember that London's success is not guaranteed. Between 1941 and 1992, its population shrank by a fifth, losing two million residents. The last few years of political instability culminating in Liz Truss's disastrous budget premiership has made the whole of the UK an unstable place to invest. Brexit has created new barriers for talent and increased the cost of doing business. And most concerningly of all, we are allowing London's greatest asset, our social mix, to be put at risk. The last 12 years have seen a profound shift in London's demographics, with families increasingly pushed out of the centre of the city. My borough, Camden, now has the lowest birth rate in the country. The exponential growth in house prices is well known, and the extreme end, the average house price in Camden is now £795,000, which is just out of the realms of possibility for, for most people in our city and the latest census shows a further fall in home ownership across the city. But for me, an even more profound shift is what's happening in the private rented sector. This used to be a tenure that families in central London in my community could afford to live in, but successive changes in policy have undermined this. In 2011, the local housing allowance, which is the maximum amount of housing benefit that can be paid, went from covering the bottom 50% of properties to the bottom 30% followed by years of rent freezes or, or below inflation rises, completely breaking the link uh, be, between rent rises and housing benefits. The net result of that is there are almost no homes sitting under housing benefit cap in my borough. At the same time, we're seeing a proliferation of short-term lets, Airbnb and so on, um, which have seen many flats that could have housed families go off the market. Research by Savile showed that between 2021 and 2022, only 8.8% of properties listed for rent in London were affordable to people on housing benefit, and that goes down to 1.4% for inner London boroughs like Camden, which is a huge change. And this has been accompanied by a sharp increase in homelessness, unsurprisingly. In London, we now have 162,000 people, over 78,000 children, living in temporary accommodation. That's more than the population of Oxford. They might be waking up tomorrow in a B&B, a hostel, or poorly converted office with no idea where they're going to stay the night after. The number of households in temporary accommodation has risen by 50% since 2010. And the work that many of us are doing to buy new properties really feels like a drop in the ocean compared to the overwhelming need we're seeing. And things are only getting worse. The private renter sector is contracting in London and prices have gone up by 17% in the last year. In London Council's annual Ipsos Mori survey, renters painted a really grim picture of life in London. Three in five say their rents had increased this year and a similar proportion expect their landlord to raise their rent substantially when they next renew their tenancy. 46% of renters told us they may have no choice but to move if their rent increases any further. And these figures 
are putting even more pressure on social housing, where complexity and need is growing. It's getting harder and harder to imagine uh, getting a, a council home in London. Every day, I thank those leaders before me who did ensure that a third of, our, of my borough was social housing. In the 1970s, Frank Dobson and his peers were buying up uh, a lot of Camden, and, and I'm deeply grateful for them, because without that, our mix would have been completely lost. But even though we're building thousands more council homes, the first in a generation in Camden and many boroughs are doing the same, it feels like we're fighting an absolute tidal wave with the chronic underfunding of council housing nationally and trying to catch up with properties lost to right to buy. Increasingly, people in the middle just don't have a hope of staying in central London. Children who grew up in my borough, received a great education, who want to stay close to family and community, uh, just don't have a chance. And this is cutting across deep ties of community, belonging and identity, leaving people feeling really displaced from the place they call home. Most of the people I went to school with, whether they're nurses or teachers or teaching assistants or corporate executives, have left Camden. And we're closing down schools in Camden, Islington, Haringey, Hackney and Tower Hamlets. So the last 10 years, as shown by the census, have seen a profound shift in London's population. The latest census shows that outer London has grown at almost double the rate of inner London, and outer London has now, for the first time, become more deprived than inner London. But this is really concentrated. Richmond is still the least deprived borough, closely followed by Kingston and Bromley. So you just have this increasing pressure on narrowing parts of London that are still affordable. Croydon, Ealing, Barking and Dagenham, Newham and Brent. But even there, affordable areas are diminishing all the time, concentrating poverty and putting extreme pressure on underfunded services. There are now fewer people living in poverty in London than 10 years ago. And that's not because people have got richer. It's because people are being forced out of our city. And across the city, we've seen a decrease in younger age groups. There were significant reductions in those in their 20s and early 30s and in under fours suggesting that London is just becoming somewhere where people can't get a foothold and start a family. So this overall trend is one where London risks losing our next generation and hollowing out our city. And those who remain uh, are finding it harder and harder to live. For the half of the city, still facing huge deprivation and poverty, things have become deeply difficult. We know wages haven't kept up with inflation, in London, half of those living in poverty have at least one member of a family in work. In Camden, that's over 70%. So in-work poverty is a huge challenge. And there's a growing trend of poverty in general. In 2011, uh, just under 12,000 people used Trussell Trust food banks. In, in the year up to 2022, it was 300,000. The cost of living crisis has exposed how fragile things are for, are for so many in our city. And I really believe that housing, costs, poverty and inequality are the greatest risks to the future of our city. And we saw that really starkly in COVID as overcrowding put lives at risk. And we saw the impact of a lack of action on race inequality as black and Asian Londoners were disproportionately impacted by the disease. And I think it demonstrates how strained our social safety net is. It often feels like we're putting a sticking plaster over chronic issues with short-term piecemeal emergency funds. A large proportion of Londoners, whether in or out of work, do not have enough to cover the basic cost of living, housing, food, energy, digital connectivity, transport, which leaves them stuck in an anxious spiral of debt, impossible choices about whether they or their children will eat, and few progression routes out. London has a high number of vacancies, but also residents with many significant barriers to employment, unemployment and long-term unemployment are higher in London than the rest of the country. And Londoners spend a much higher proportion of their income on housing, which is just leaving them trapped in poverty. And it would be such a tragedy if we did lose our openness and our mix, if central London becomes tech parks with no links to communities. And we are, I think, in danger of losing not just our inclusivity, but also growth. London is not just Oxford Street, the Houses of Parliament, South Bank, King's Cross. It's also Hounslow, Bromley and Croydon. 
The initial post-COVID picture is one of a shift of office demand to best-in-class sustainable buildings, particularly in prime locations. JLL's data shows almost three quarters of the total space under offer a newly built or refurbished stock. So this leaves a huge risk of stranded assets and a flight to flagship headquarters in central and growth locations. But equally, the foundational economy is central to every part of our city, and we can't have a position where the businesses and people that provide it can't afford to stay in central London. London does, of course, have a best transport infrastructure, and TfL is a great success. But there are pockets of London with very poor transport links, large parts of South London, that desperately need transport infrastructure investment. And the stripping out of capacity from London local government and public services shows in our public realm. We've got less capacity for big aspirational projects, but also just some of the basics like planning and street cleaning and making sure London remains an attractive destination. And we've seen a direct correlation between growing health inequalities, youth violence and homelessness to the slashing of public services under austerity. And it really says something for our city that despite all of this, we are seeing inward investment, but it is slowing down in some areas. So the challenge facing London is enormous, to grow our economy and to do that in a way that lifts our communities and tackles stark inequalities. Now you're hearing a lot from me tonight, so I'm just going to take a minute to ask everyone here to do a little bit of work. So if you can join me in imagining for a second that we fast forward to 2030, you can close your eyes, imagine you're in a very fast time machine, it's taking you forward. And just imagine that it is late, it's a late summer evening in 2030, so the sun is still uh, out outside and you're leaving the lecture and some birds, um, uh, birds singing and you're walking around London in the evening light. What do you see? How have roads and buildings changed? What can you hear? What can you smell? Is there more nature? What are people doing? What's making you smile? So what I see are new park networks where roads used to be, linking different parts of the city. I see neighbourhoods where communities have come together to insulate homes and buildings and create new green spaces. Allotments, sharing spaces, free community electric buggy schemes, play areas, new civic universities where residents are coming together with universities and companies to solve collective challenges using widely accessible public data. A city where art is filling the public realm, where no ball games, signs on estates have been replaced with inspirational messages, with tech speakers, tech hubs and studios in the heart of those estates where food co-ops have replaced food banks and new beautifully built council homes and housing first hostels with wraparound health support mean we no longer see street homelessness, where the creativity of our communities is filling our high streets and where we just can walk down the road to Oxford Street where a public art festival is filling the streets, drawing on the creativity of our different communities. Now, this might sound like a utopian dream, but all of this is entirely possible, and you will have seen something different. And so, for me, a vision for London will be stronger for all of your imagination and that of our wider communities. 2030 and these big net zero ambitions that we've made as the Mayor of London and boroughs are only seven years away. We will need the greatest period of collective innovation in our history, calling on the energy and ideas of every part of our community to have a chance of getting there. So how do we get to our collectively imagined future? I will argue that we need to invest in democratic renewal, in a deepening of collaborative leadership, and a new compact with businesses and national government. London should be known globally as the place where complex challenges are solved, where growth is inclusive, where we are at the forefront of science, technology and art, and where communities have a true stake in our city. First, I think we need to invest in the imagination and activism of our communities. The great strength of cities are places where people choose to live side by side because we want to contribute and enjoy a collective life. 
places where we celebrate, mourn, and imagine the future together, whether that's Notting Hill Carnival, the Queen's Funeral, or the London Olympics. Cities are places where we create the things that bring us joy, and London has a huge richness of green spaces, film, TV, music, art galleries, and museums. And they are places, I think, in difficult times where we come together to support each other. COVID saw an extraordinary outpouring of volunteering and mutual aid when we in Camden had 2,000 Afghan refugees placed in our community overnight. The faith, uh, local faith groups came together to produce an Amazon wish list, and uh, one of our local syn synagogues were, was open every day packing goods to support people. There's sometimes this perception of London as a lonely and transitory place, but 65% of Londoners told London councils that they felt a strong sense of belonging in their area. As I say, I think my husband sometimes wishes it felt more lonely. And, and we can build on this. The case for democratic renewal is absolutely overwhelming. There's declining faith in our institutions. The problems we face from climate, the climate crisis to deepening health inequality are complex and cannot be solved by government alone. We need the energy and creativity of every part of our community to resolve them. Now, you might think, well, this is a nice to have in the teeth of a cost of living crisis. Do we really have time to opine about democracy and participation? I would point to the cost of not doing so. The failure to grow our economy and create a broad-based prosperity and to deal with the crisis of identity, status and sense of powerlessness that, that led to Brexit. We can count the cost now in lost GDP and living standards. London was not and is not immune to those underlying currents, even if they manifest themselves differently here. For me, this requires three pillars. The first is new democratic forums that bring people closer to decisions. And one powerful tool that I really believe in is citizens' assemblies, where a representative group of citizens take part in an extended deliberative process. We've run 10 now in Camden, and I never cease to be amazed by the power of investing in a diverse group of people to negotiate complex issues. They always come up with ideas and consensus that go beyond what we could have achieved as a council alone, demonstrating the power of collective imagination. We went into our first health assembly expecting recommendations about exercise or health care, but the number one issue people identified uh, around health was social connectedness. So imagine if that was at the heart of delivering health, how differently we would organise our services. Assemblies allow trade-offs to be negotiated. Too often in an increasingly individualised political system, we experience people shouting their strongly held views into a vacuum or into Twitter, amplified by those who agree, with no space to listen or to compromise, let alone to create something new out of those differences. The power of being in that kind of democratic process, of seeing the world through people with a completely different lens, can profoundly change your view of democracy and community. And it unlocks huge energy. I remember a young guy who came to one of our assemblies and he got up and he was like, I only came here for the voucher, but it turned out to be the best thing I've ever done. If we found structures to make this a core part of our London system, we'd have better decisions, greater cohesion, and a stronger democracy. Paris's experiment in entrenching deliberation into the way the city is governed shows a growing realisation of the power this has in, in shaping a shared vision for a city facing huge inequalities. In Brussels, they've established the first permanent citizens' assembly on climate change, and these cities are showing how you can move to the institutionalisation of citizen voice in the governance of place. I believe that every Londoner should be part of either a local, London-wide or national citizens' assembly, so everyone has the opportunity to shape their community. This should be part of a new wave of investment in the capacity and strength of citizens. Experiments across London have shown the power of participatory grant-making and community investment, there are parts of my borough where I can really see that future. Skill swaps on estates, community meals, food cooperatives blossoming, repair shops, maker spaces, community um, allotments, and so much more. And the ripples of change created by handing over power and agency have gone far beyond what we could have imagined when we started. There's an increasing movement in local government to invest in the strength of our people and communities. 
On Friday, I was at an event put on by children's services under the banner, To Love is to Act. It was organised by parents who had lived experience of social services. It's hard to put into words how moving it is to hear parents who have been failed by the system, sometimes had their children taken away by the council to come together and talk about how they are shaping a new service powered by relationships, by love and by healing. And to hear social workers at the same time talking about their commitment to bring humanity and love to work, even when it's hard. And through a deep investment in relationships and early help, we've seen a 30% reduction in children coming into the care system without lowering thresholds. We've had an Ofsted outstanding judgment and we have one of the only children's services in the country staying under budget while increasing our offer to families. And we had a group of suited analysts come from the Treasury to understand why we were so financially successful in Camden. And they, can you just imagine their dismay when they realised underneath all of that uh, hard data was a team talking about relationships and talking really proudly about love. So I think for me, from employment support to adult social care, the key to changing outcomes is investing in people who are given the time and space to see a whole person and their networks, form a relationship of equals and help them to move forward on their aspirations. People are absolutely desperate for more power and agency over their own lives. And if we can't enable that, we will continue to see the growth of divisive politics as they look for it elsewhere. And we can also bring citizens into defining what success looks like. Too often, what we value is what we can measure from GDP to employment figures. But the experience of residents is so much richer. Are these good jobs? Do they provide security? Does the city enhance well-being? The Institute for Global Prosperity at UCL have worked with Camden and four other boroughs to develop a citizen-led well-being index. The deep work we have done gives us a wider lens to judge regeneration and services, not just through growth, but also through well-being. Once again, positive connections came up as a key measure of success. A decades-long Harvard study reaffirms what we hear from our communities time and time again, that it is the quality and quantity of human connections that make the biggest difference to happiness and health. And yet that's a whole sphere of policy that is often completely ignored. For residents, issues of belonging identity sat alongside the crucial issue of secure livelihoods, and we need to pay attention to both. It would be so powerful if there was a London-wide framework that helped us to make sure our economy was working for all our citizens. We can learn from New Zealand, which has a well-being framework incorporated into their budget-making process. But new structures and frameworks are not enough. Alongside new democratic forums, we need to foster and support a new era of municipal imagination. The old structures are not working, and we can't be stuck in fear and resource competition. If we want to avoid recreating the same things as before, we have to unlock the imagination of our city. We can't lose sight of how wrong things have got. The councils are opening up warm banks, are handing out nappies and hot water bottles because people can't afford to heat their homes. We can never normalise this. We need to stop putting sticking plasters over those broken systems and actually reimagine something better together from the ground up. Imagination activism is a new kind of activism focused on, on the new over fighting the old. It's different from the activism of protest, although that continues to be very important, and sees people making changes by coming together to imagine new, more optimistic futures as a basis for doing the hard work to redesign our economy and public services. It's really easy to imagine a dystopian future of a hollowed out city beset by climate challenges. Far harder is to envisage a positive, optimistic future but that is necessary to move forwards. When you resource this, start to bring people's ideas to life, the energy unlocked is extraordinary. I was doing an event recently where someone asked me, when you open up to all these citizens, how do you say no? But what we found is that when we've invested in imagination, we find new ways to say yes. And often there's no lack of imagination in our communities, just a lack of hope that their ideas will be heard um, which is why it's so critical that this is part of a toolkit of government. 
In Canton, we've been working with the amazing Phoebe Tickle, who's just down here, founder of Moral Imaginations, who pioneered so much of the thinking on this subject and has been a massive influence on me. And we've been running an imagination activism programme for staff across our organisation, from repair staff to planners and to social workers, and we've seen absolutely amazing things happen with very small numbers. And imagine if this was how we invested in all our public sector staff, gave them those tools. Collective imagination is a muscle that needs scaffolding and support. It's not enough to tell people that they should imagine more. We need to give them the time and space and permission to exercise their imaginations and grow that capacity. And this has to start with education. We've seen a, a really concerning devaluing of the arts over the last decade. In Camden, our schools are part of a STEAM network, which very proudly puts the A, the arts, at the heart of, of education. And every child has the opportunity to, to learn an instrument. And if you visit a school in Camden, you can see many with artists in residence or even uh, orchestras in residence. Because I think to truly equip children for the modern world, we can't just teach them technical skills. We need the ability to create, to dream, and to imagine. And we need to take really seriously who's given the time, space, and opportunity to imagine. If we just leave it to the technologists and those with power, there's little hope that we're going to rise to the grand challenges we face as a society. Imagination needs to be a social and collective act. And the fuel to imagination is future thinking. So we can build in this on the powerful leadership of Wales, who've passed a Wellbeing of Future Generations Act to ensure that they are always thinking of their, the next generations when they make decisions. And we can create a new imagination infrastructure through a London office of civic imagination. Cities around the world are embracing this, from Bologna to Mexico City, where governments have funded laboratories for civic imagination. And as well as democratic renewal, we also need to invest in collaboration. I went to speak to a group of mainly international students about London uh, a couple of months ago. And whilst I had painstakingly finished explaining to them the different structures, the sub-regional structures, the council structures, the regional structures to an increasingly exhausted-looking group, one of them just looked at me really bemused and was like, why? And you would never design the governance we have now if you were starting from scratch. And I do think it needs to change. But there is strength, I think, in what I like to, to call the beautiful messiness. Boroughs are small enough to deeply link to communities. When this works, it means we can really understand the different communities that make up London and respond to them. I think our human scale is why local authorities in London are consistently the most popular form of government. 48% of people are satisfied with their local council, despite all the cuts. And, in this, and um, polling shows that people were three times as likely to trust their council to make decisions about local services than national government. Having 33 different authorities with different populations and challenges is a huge opportunity for innovation and, and experimentation, which is the best way to design new policies at scale. And I chair, as Leanne said earlier, an organisation called London Councils, which is a cross-party collective of 33 London authorities, including the City of London. We've chosen to come together to solve the complex and shared challenges facing London. And COVID made our partnership even stronger. When the pandemic hit London, we had all sorts of different structures and boundaries and a pandemic that didn't care about any of them. Ego-led or directive approaches that tried to rigidly control didn't work. We needed a new dialogue with our communities and each other. Alongside collaboration, having a strong sense of purpose to guide that work was crucial and keeping Londoners safe gave us both. We set up daily meetings between the Mayor of London and the cross-party leaders of London. Peter John, who was the chair before me, started that off. And then weekly meetings of all leaders and chief execs. And we worked alongside amazing NHS and public health leaders. Kevin Fenton, I think I saw in the room, was, was there. And I think I spoke to Kevin and the other stakeholders more than I spoke to my own family during those months. Trust grew and we understood each other's pressures and we were able to speak with one voice time and time ago. We created good practice networks, we experimented at speed, we shared back our learning. And when we couldn't find a solution, we created new ones. The power of deep collaboration and relationships is often undervalued. 
but the ability to have those informal conversations, to anticipate conflict, to make compromises, to understand somebody else's values can be more powerful than any structure in bringing about lasting change. And we try to take that same spirit of collaboration into recovery as we face equally complex challenges. London's Recovery Board is co-chaired by myself and the Mayor of London, bringing together some of London's key anchors. Building on the work we did in Camden with the economist Professor Mariana Mazzucatu and the Institute for Public Purpose in Camden, we decided to take a missions-based approach to recovery. Cross-cutting missions were an opportunity to build on that sense of shared purpose and mobilise the many resources in our city. And we're working with Metro Dynamics to develop a shared London infrastructure plan so we can speak with one voice to investors and government about the needs of our city, from energy to transport. We've come together with cities across the UK to form FreeCI, the City's Commission for Climate Investment. This is a groundbreaking piece of work that seeks to use our scale as a group of cities to unlock some of the billions of investment that we heard about at COP for real projects in our communities. We've identified a pipeline of over a thousand projects and are in detailed work on new models of finance. By working together and agreeing shared standards, local government seeks to create a new market where London alone could create over 100,000 jobs we could decarbonise our built environment and mean that people aren't going to bed freezing because they can't afford to turn on their heating. And we continue to respond to emergencies. London opened up to refugees from Afghanistan, Ukraine and other parts of the world. And we were the first region to agree a plan across London for long-term housing for those seeking asylum. Now, don't get me wrong, we are politicians from very different uh, perspectives and we sometimes really disagree, but we try and focus on where there is consensus and build from there. And in my view, it's really deeply important to have a a mayor that's able to be a powerful voice for London and to convene across the city. A city like London needs someone who can tell our story and stand up for our values. And Sadiq has been a powerful voice for an open, inclusive London when our national leaders became more inward-looking and divisive. The policy decisions the mayor has made on air quality have had a dramatic result. Harmful air pollution has reduced by almost half in central London. So we need strong London leadership from the mayor. But to meet our aspirations, it's critical to have the understanding and community leadership of boroughs and the feedback loop between the two. Long term, I think there's a case for deepening this joint working and creating structures that bind the borough and the, the, mayor of London, the boroughs and the mayor of London together. It makes no sense for a city like London that relies on collaboration to have no formal governance that links the boroughs and the mayor. And I'd like to see us build on the success of combined authorities to develop London's governance so we have shared accountability and a duty to collaborate. But for me, even more critical is changing the relationship with national government. Policy is too often designed in a vacuum and handed down to to local places in a way that pays no attention to their context. The 19th century political theorist Joshua Tomlin Smith wrote that local self-government is the system of government under which the greatest number of minds knowing the most and having the fullest opportunities of knowing it about the special matter in hand and having the greatest interest in its working well have management or control of it. In stark contrast, he wrote, centralisation is that system of government in which the smallest number of minds and those knowing the least and having the fewest opportunities of knowing it and having the smallest interest in it working well have management of it or control of it, which I think sums things up pretty nicely. But these really aren't matters of theory. Take HS2. It provides this huge opportunity to reshape parts of our cities, to provide a physical and social infrastructure that supports communities to thrive and create improved links across the country. But in the hands of a distant finance ministry and the Department of Transport, it is a project to build a railway. Housing, community facilities and the social fabric of historical neighbourhoods are an afterthought. Despite the huge efforts of Camden and Peter Hendy, who's been absolutely uh, amazing, um, it's just the structures. Imagine how different this would be if local communities were in control with a mix of funding from local and central government and real partnership. My view is we need to completely change the culture of a civil service to one of partnership. And this means freeing up departments from their own silos. 
My experience of working with government is too often a narrow departmental bidding process on small agendas with very little true cross-departmental work on outcomes. But a place lens allows us to think about people living in real communities and everything they need to thrive. A shared investment strategy can unlock positive outcomes on housing, health, employment, safety, well-being and belonging. Demos Helsinki have worked with the Finnish Prime Minister's Office to develop a model of humble, governments to, hum, humble governance to meet the modern age. And their proposition is that to restore their capacity to solve collective problems in times of political anxiety and uncertainty, governments need to learn to be humble. Humility entails both a willingness to listen to different opinions and to change course in the light of new insights. This just needs a thin consensus or broad shared purpose to, to enable devolved problem solving, but then critically mechanisms to learn from those experiences and deepen that consensus. They point to successful examples such as the Finnish education system, where national education outcomes are set out, but a high degree of trust is given to schools and teachers to implement them, crucially with a feedback loop between the two. This long-term commitment to collaboration and continuous iteration connects the frontline experience with national policy. And on the flip side, you can argue that we're failing to make progress because of a lack of feedback, of a feedback loop between local experience and national decisions. I believe London's governance, with a mix of city-wide and devolved structures, is well-placed to lead on a humble governance model. And we've already seen a profound shift in the last few years, and I'm excited to see how this deepens over time. But for London, this collaboration has to go beyond our own city. We have a national asset, it's a global city which attracts investment, but this has to work for the rest of the country. I remember bumping into Tom Reardon, who's the chief exec of Leeds City Council in uh, Boston, of all places, at MIT. And I remember being really surprised when the American academics were like, oh, you two are just right next door to each other. Because we talk sometimes in the UK as if uh, different parts of a country are different worlds. But we're really deeply linked on a relatively small island, and we now have a thriving partnership with Leeds. We have to think about a network of cities that are growing together and supporting their regions. The truth is that none of our cities are meeting their potential in terms of productivity. We need a new industrial strategy that links our cities together through national missions and coordinated investment in sectors that create jobs and growth. This needs stronger transport connections between cities, especially in the north of England. And London anchors need to be national ones who consider their social value proposition to London, but also the rest of the country. Community wealth building in London has to have a broader gaze, and London's spending power could shape new, more equitable markets across the country. But we need to do so much more to build on these connections and make sure they go both ways. The growth we're seeing in green finance in London is unlocking solar panels and wind farms in other parts of the country. There's an opportunity for the City of London to have an even more central role in helping unlock the financing needs, not just of London, but the whole country as part of a new industrial strategy. Life Sciences is creating new innovation corridors from London to Cambridge to Manchester, and we could invest in these developing ecosystems to be an international leader in this space. But to do this, we need a completely new settlement with our regions and local government. The UK has one of the most centralised governments in the world, uh, and the centre's problem overall is just a tendency towards overreach. It tries to do too much without the capability to deliver. We need local government to have standing in our constitutional settlement, to no longer be a creature of Westminster, but its own independent pillar of a state. Only then can we unlock the opportunities of humble governance and get towards a relationship of equals that addresses the country's problems. A new British constitutional settlement should also enshrine governance that serves a common purpose, secures economic, social, environmental and cultural well-being and meaningfully devolves powers to cities and communities, including constitutional protections of social and economic rights, a duty on public sector bodies to promote, to promote well-being and invest in the interests of future generations, building on uh, Wales's leadership, and subsidiarity as a guiding principle, devolution by default with power held at the most local level possible. Devolution by itself does not ensure community power. 
Scottish devolution has given much greater national autonomy, but has arguably seen a greater centralisation of power in Holyrood. We need to ensure that power is distributed. The London Finance Commission, led by previous lecture giver Tony Travers here on the front row, is still our preferred position that London should gain control over the major property taxes. Of course, this is a fundamental change for the country, and I think there's a pathway to move towards that fiscal devolution. This could be, mean retaining more of the income created here, like road taxes or new powers to introduce um, income from an overnight levy to creating new council tax bans. Land value capture models could unlock stalled infrastructure projects, leading vital public investments, leaving vital public investment for parts of the country with lower land values. KPMG and Savile's research for TfL showed there is a huge, there is huge value that is being generated by the public sector, which goes mainly to private landowners. Eight future TfL projects can produce land value uplift of about £87 billion. And there's lots of different models we could explore to, to capture this, such as the power to levy zonal precepts on council tax for a specific area at a specific time, removing the need for a ballot to levy a business rate supplement or simply allowing us to retain a proportion of the business rate's growth around an infrastructure project, with the rest going to investment in other parts of the country. And these shouldn't just be London powers. This should be part of trailblazing devolution powers, providing places with the long-term tools and incentives to deliver growth for local people. We need powers to take on thorny challenges that hold our city back, such as fragmented land ownership. It's really hard sometimes to find out who landowners are, let alone encourage them to sign up to a shared vision. We need new powers to take over properties left vacant, easier powers of compulsory purchase, and stronger powers to curate retail and office uses so we can grow thriving places. An online sales tax could go into a long-term fund for each of the regions to invest in innovative placemaking. And government could open up more investment by ending the tax-free status of pension funds unless there's at least a 10% investment in real infrastructure projects. And none of these are easy conversations. But to achieve this, London needs a new compact with businesses and with national government. And there can be trade-offs as we approach this. Boroughs can come together to voluntarily standardise where it makes sense. We know that sometimes it can be frustrating to have to speak to 33 of us. But there are powers each city region needs to drive inclusive growth and grow a new network of thriving cities. But growth alone is not enough, and we need to design this new settlement in a way that ensures London and other cities grow, but also that growth also benefits our communities. The deepening inequality and hollowing out we see in London will happen in other places unless we learn from what's happening at the moment in London. The growth that we're seeing in London is world-leading, but there's a huge risk that communities just experience this as poorer air quality as construction goes through them uh, and a displacement of their history and their future. This can feel really visceral. A young woman told me what it felt like to sit in her estate and watch a new glass community be built in front of her council flat. And we can't allow communities to become alienated from the growth around them. We need to take really seriously the need for genuinely affordable housing in the centre of cities. This means a national council house building programme that includes uh, central London. It also means building on the Mayor of London's baseline of 35% genuinely affordable homes to stop overvalued land preventing the delivery of affordable housing. And the proximity of businesses to communities provides opportunities for employees to come into communities and work to solve complex challenges alongside them. But this needs to be visible and sustained. Not a nice corporate away day or a tiny fund, but serious strategic investment with real conditions attached to doing business in our city or with public bodies. Google and Meta can't continue to be down the road from a school where during the pandemic 70% of the children had no access to Wi-Fi or a device to learn. They need to be creating state-of-the-art tech spaces in our communities. And world-leading pharmaceutical companies can't exist next to communities that are dying on average 10 years young, earlier than richer ones. We need co-produced centres of health inequality that invest in health and well-being. Local global venture capital firm in Camden who've set up their business so a proportion of their profits go directly into the 
community are supporting 30 free organisations and free school meals at free schools. This could be the norm as part of a London story, purposeful capital sharing the value created in a place. And there are other examples in the city, but real change requires us to be a condition of making your home in London. What if a proportion of a profit made in a place was invested into a community wealth fund that lifted those living alongside it? This is where we're trying to get to in Camden, a long-term fund for local people who face barriers to entrepreneurialism that gives them a stake in their future and allows their success to lift future generations. And the London story tells us that there's a need for fundamental reform of our social safety net. The beverage settlement is straining under the demands of a modern world. In Camden, we've worked through the frame of universal basic services with the aim of raising living standards by using the levers we have to open up access to essential services such as transport, digital connectivity, housing and childcare. The Beverage Report came out through repeated um, experimentation and trial. We need to work together to trial new approaches and grow this new human-centred safety net. Work by Anna Coote of the New Economics Foundation showed that reimagining childcare as a universal service, to give just one example, could reduce the income that parents need to find for a decent living standard by 7,500 a year, improve outcomes for children, and unlock a new wave of productivity. Universal basic services have to draw on local strengths and relationships, but come together in a national set of guarantees. And our citizens have told us that we need to take seriously the need for belonging, social connectedness and identity. In Somers Town, a really proud, radical, working-class community next to King's Cross, there's a sense of being done to, of gentrification of history and identity disappearing. Residents came together to create the local People's Museum of Somers Town, called a space for us, to tell their stories, preserve their shared identity, and they're now buying back art lost to the community. These spaces that celebrate and honour the diverse history of place matter. They tell the stories of the imagination activists of the past who reimagined Summerstown, enabling communities to lead on cultural output, to own assets and to have a say about the organisations that move into an area is crucial to retaining social solidarity. And if we get this right, we can build on what makes us special to find a new role in a global community of cities. I hope I've got across this evening the potential of London. We have, as a capital, a rare combination of government, arts, culture and finance. We're, we are an organically growing city which creates a, creates a diversity of place and a human scale. There is still a huge amount to do on race inequality, but London has the ability to embrace diversity better than most other cities and brings together people and welcomes new communities, which for me is a deep strength. And we can continue to reassess our past and broaden our horizons. Since, since its first edition in 1896, Bannister Fletcher has been essential reading for generations of architects and students, and this lecture is one legacy. The book was recommissioned and relaunched by Reba in 2019, co-created with 88 new authors as a conscious effort to transform the book into a truly globalised history of architecture. As the launch article put it, the result is a vital break with the imperialist worldview permeating earlier editions, and one example of how we're embracing our responsibility to reveal modern, relevant narratives. London is a place where we can continue to enrich our understanding and insights by the rich diversity and experience of our city. Globally, 56% of the world's population live in cities, and by 2050, this is projected to be 7 out of 10 people. 80% of the world's GDP is created in cities. Cities have a massive opportunity to reimagine how we live, and London can play a really important role in an international community of cities at the forefront of thinking about democratic innovation and renewal, sustainability and climate change, and the relationship of cities to each other rather than just nation-states. The Mayor of London's leadership of C40 has been important in leading this new urban conversation. London can be known for our municipal imagination and innovation in tackling complex urban challenges. When we invest in imagination, democratic renewal and collaboration, change happens at pace. We've tried directive, centralised models of government in many forms, and we are in a place of crisis on almost every front. It's time for a new model. 
We can be a world leader in the three pillars of collaborative governments, democratic renewal and civic imagination, solving problems at scale while iterating with our communities. We can imagine and create a city that is growing without deepening inequalities, but uses the mix of our communities to strengthen social solidarity and our social safety net. We can be the first net zero city, the first city to see a true social guarantee, the most cohesive, diverse city in the world. And I feel deeply excited about what we can achieve together over the next seven years. We don't need to wait for national change. We have the imagination, expertise and collective power to make huge strides together. So I look forward to working with the London Society and everyone in this room and many more to get us there. Well, that was fantastic, wasn't it? A wonderful round of applause and fully deserved. Now, we've got 10 minutes. Can you hear me okay? I think you can now. We've got 10 minutes absolute top, so I'm going to ask you one question. There'll probably be time for about three from the, from the audience. So there were so many ideas there. A lot of them uh, are kind of e evolving and emerging, and you start, you had a, there was a very optimistic end, which is just about ruined my question, actually. <laughs> you said, we don't have to wait for national change. But my question is... Um, a lot of those things could surely grow faster and better and stronger if there was the right kind of national change. So within two years from now, there's going to be a general election. Um, bear, keep that in mind. What, what things do you... What, how much optimism should we have about the future that national government will start to help London's local and regional government to put some of these ideas in your vision into greater effect. Yeah, well, I am a Labour politician, so uh, I think a Labour government would, um, <laughs> would be a, a great thing for the country, unsurprisingly. Um, and I do, I think that the conversation we're seeing in the Labour Party is a really profound shift because, you know, I think the last Labour government did lots of brilliant things, but it was a very centrally directed government. And I think that where they could have gone further is really partnership, partnering with local communities. But I think through the, the Gordon Brown report, which, you know, has you know, a, a real framework for um, handing over power uh, to communities through Keir Starmer's Take Back Control Promise um, Bill, uh, which would you know, you know, take some of these ideas into kind of a, 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 practical, um, a practical action plan. Um, I think we're seeing a real kind of green shoots of a completely different way of working. And I think for a local government leader, we are having those conversations with the shadow team. What does this mean for energy policy? What does this mean for the work we talked about? About, um, financing retrofit. Uh, what you know? What does this mean for education policy? It, it does feel like a true conversation. So, I you know I don't want to wait because the issues we face are so urgent. We've only got seven years to meet net zero, and through deepening our collaboration in London, there's a huge amount we can do. But you know that I mean, if we had a change in government that really backed local communities, uh, I think it, you could see a really profound shift in, in the country. But I do sense, and this is as, as your chair of London Council, which is a cross-party body, of course, very much so. and I, I've often heard you speak uh, in very complimentary ways about uh, leaders of local authorities from other political parties, Conservatives and, and Lib Dems in the city. So do you think that there is a, a cross-party consensus about at least some of the, the ideas in, 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 that you've expressed this evening that's coming together within London. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I hope I got across, I think, the power, I think, of a purposeful leadership of um, the different cross-party uh, leaders in, in London, Theresa and Ruth and Catherine at the time, and, and now Chris Hayward from, from the city. And, you know, through COVID, we, it wasn't always easy to, to come together. There were lots of difficult decisions we had to make. Um, and sometimes for... For conservative leaders, it meant standing up to to their government, and that you know I, I would find that hard. And, and people, they did what they did the right thing. And I think we, 
in, we have worked so closely together and we um, and on, on some of these issues about subsidiarity about local places you know there is I think incredibly strong cross-party consensus and I think that has enabled us to get on with doing a huge amount I mean don't get me wrong there are things we disagree on maybe somebody will ask me about them but you know there are some big things that we agree on like you know we've all come together to agree that every um, home in London should be EPC rated B by 2030 which if we manage that would be extraordinary in terms of what we could do to decarbonize our city and uh, deal with the cost of living crisis so on these big issues around Good. the climate crisis and devolution i think there is a lot of consensus i'm feeling much more cheerful already <laughs> so can we have some some hands up um how about that woman there in the sort of fawn colored i can't describe your what you're wearing but That was brilliant, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. My name's Claire Richards of Footwork. I know from the work we do that what you say is true. Because <laughs> huge potential in communities. My question is on the other side of the deal. How do you get local councils and whole systems like development and planning to buy into this deal and sign up to it. Great, thank you. Okay. Do you want me to take them one I, by I one? Wonder, let, let's do them one at a time, because we're only going to have three, but okay. a quick answer would be good, <laughs> followed by two more quick questions. I mean, I think the transformation has to, to go together, and that's a journey we've been on in Camden to, to open up our council and work alongside our communities differently. And it has been a bigger, the bigger change has been for the council because it's realising that often that we were the block, that we were the problem. Uh, and we've almost got an unblocking team now that where we kind of invest in community projects, we kind of, we understand what, what where are the places that we are holding things back? And then we work to change them within our organisation. But what you see, I think when you open things up, you get this wave of energy. So the first time we did a citizens assembly, everyone was like, oh God, what is this? It's the leader's kind of latest mad idea um, but then once we did it and people saw what it had unlocked now every department is absolutely desperate to um, to have one and to be part of it and some of the work that Phoebe led in Camden about imagination activism you know there were people deeply skeptical as you can imagine going into that but you know planners and and they and then what they're doing is they're now as we look at our local plan organizing imagination sessions with the community so so I think once you start, you see a kind of, um, you see a burst of energy that continues and brings more people into it. Okay, great. Let's have another question. Gentleman at the front here. I just saw you first, so. Thank you. Um, you've mentioned the very laudable efforts to achieve net zero by 2030, but we know that even if we do achieve that, temperatures are going to increase yeah. significantly for decades to come beyond this before they go down, if they ever go down. And we've seen temperatures in the Arctic and the Antarctic that are 40 degrees above normal. And can you imagine what it would be like in London today if the yeah. temperature was 40 degrees okay. above normal? So who is thinking about how we're going to make London a livable and workable place when this happens and we know it's going to happen okay thank you yeah i mean that's a great question and i think this year has shown that both the the extreme heat we we saw or last year um and the and the flooding so i think there's a, a growing um a growing work going on about climate resilience and, and adaption sadly and not just meeting net zero and in doing that there's actually cities like cordoba um and seville i, I think are really leading the way and so there's a lot of learning internationally to to do but just to kind of reassure you that is you know flood prevention uh, dealing with extreme heat that is exactly the work that we are starting to do as, as London government because you're right even if we do meet it and we are absolutely determined to we will need to to adapt so they're putting the work in and let's have a question from near the back up there um, gentleman up there uh, on the right at the very edge It's on, it, it's on its way, it's on its way. There you go. Thank you. Your question, please. One issue I didn't hear you touch on the main, uh, was the issue of green space in London. And um, we are in supposedly a, a national park city now. This is one of the things that Sadiq Khan. But uh, what, what we see is boroughs throughout 
London building on the green spaces in their existing estates that were created at an idealistic time when housing was designed to be green and now boroughs throughout uh, including Camden, but certainly Islington and Southwark in particular, are seizing on those green spaces just when they're all saying how necessary they okay, are. Okay, so, so what, is your, what is your question? Well, for what, is, what are you going to do to, to, to implement the implications of Sadiq Khan's National Park City? Great question, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I said that if one of the things that makes London great is our green spaces and we're incredibly lucky to have them. And I think that part of that kind of adaption to, to climate that we talked about needs to be creating new ones. And in Camden, we created the, the first park um, in... I don't know how many years, Alfred Place, which was part of the Tottenham Court road scheme, which was a road that turned into a new park. And for me, that has to be part of the future. And I'd love to see a new network of parks where, uh, you know, where, where there used to be roads that connect the city. And we look, we're, we're in Camden working on the Camden High Line, which would be a new, a new kind of vertical park uh, that, that sits on the railway, very much supported by, by network rail. So I think that you know, we do need to, to build new housing, but we need to create places, and that includes schools and green spaces and everything that, that forms a community. So uh, you know, I think there is some, some real work going on to look at how we invest in and create new green spaces, and hopefully you'll see more of that. Great. Thank you very much. Now, look, we've, I'd love to be here all night. Sorry, I talked too long. <laughs> no, it's, it's absolutely fine, but we do need to stop now. There are so many more questions I know that you wanted to ask, but we have, we have got to stop. So I would just like to thank you again, Georgia, for a fantastic lecture. And I'd like to thank everybody who came. It's been wonderful to see pretty much a full house, uh, lots of, lots of uh, great stuff to talk about amongst yourselves when we all go and have a drink and to follow up at a later date. So can we have another big round of applause for Georgia? Okay, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.